happy anniversary, everybody. And we've got this final question today is, uh, does our culture still need its Christian roots? And then next week, we're starting a series uh, going through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. So you don't want to miss that. It's going to be a really exciting series, uh, returning to the city, returning to God. And, uh, but this, this question, does our culture still need its Christian roots, is a really foundational, really vital question. I think many people are realizing that a lot of the values that we hold as a culture, values like equality, things like rights, justice, even the moral virtues that we have, freedom, even things like higher education and charity and compassion and forgiveness, all these values and virtues that we have as a culture, they come from, they've emerged from Christianity. And people are realizing and waking up to the idea that we cannot have an open, cohesive society we will, if we lose these values. And actually, as a culture, we're becoming self-destructive and we're losing these values. And I want to say today, I'm going to argue today, that if we continue to move away from our Christian roots, we will lose these values that we care about so greatly and so dearly. I want to urge you, if you don't believe in God, that this message is so vital for the future of civilization, for you to take the Christian message seriously for what it means for us to maintain these good kingdom of God values that we have currently in our culture. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read from uh, Luke chapter 10, verse uh, 25. Jesus, we pray for your power to illuminate your word to us today. Help us understand our context, our history, and help us to understand your word that we would, we, we would know your purposes, that you're building your kingdom on earth through us and the dangers that we face as a culture as we reject you. Help us to trust you. Help us to not trust the schemes and plans of man, but help us to trust your word and your promises and your power. And Lord, anyone who's with us today, watching online or in person that doesn't yet believe, bring them in, bring them through. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is talking about Jesus. And it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. 
He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on the oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's word. This lawyer is asking Jesus a big life question. He's asking him, how can my life count? He's thinking about the future, beyond this life, into the next life. How can this life that I live, how can it count for that life? Now, this is one of the biggest questions you could ask. Every culture asks this question in some form or another. Our culture grapples with this question. It maybe manifests itself in different ways, but we're all essentially asking like, what's the point, what's the purpose? Does the way I live now, does it mean anything? Does it, does it affect the future? Is there an afterlife? And does, does it affect that? That's a big question we're all ans- asking. And because our culture has really rejected belief in God, or we could say specifically rejected belief in the God of the Bible, I would say, I, my observation is that our culture is now on a, in a destructive search for meaning. Google is good for recipes, but not so much for the meaning of life. Our secular ideology will tell us, or secular ideo- people with a secular, ide- secular ideology will tell us, that life is just an absurd veneer. It's an absurd veneer. It doesn't, it, it doesn't really mean any, anything. It might look like it means something to some people, but beneath the surface, there's no meaning. And the only reason you feel hollow and sad about that is because you insist that there must be a meta-narrative. There must be a higher purpose. There must be something. There must be God or something bigger. And if you just stop imagining that, you ignore that impulse, then you'll feel better about it. Now, before I critique that point, let me, let me make a, build a bridge where I think those who are more secular-minded and those who are more spiritual, spiritually-minded, actually where we agree. I think, there's, uh, I think we'd all agree with this, I, I hope, that... Human beings have an indispensable need for meaning. We, have an, we all have a psychological indispensable need for meaning. And what, I, what I mean by that, what I mean by, by meaning, is, is that you have to, we're all striving to find significance, but it's significance in something bigger than ourselves, beyond ourselves. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're striving for. And as a culture, we, we, I think we're in trouble. We're losing a lot of that meaning. A lot of the, 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 the destructive self-destructiveness is a loss of that meaning. There was a social experiment that was conducted in a nursing home where they wanted to see what would happen if they brought in pets into the nursing home. And so they brought in dogs and cats and uh, birds and rabbits. And they, they noticed, they paid attention to what the residents did. People who had never spoken in that nursing home started speaking. People who had been recluse and withdrawn socially came out of their shells, started volunteering to take care of the animals. They named the animals. Some of them adopted these animals. It was amazing. The the nursing home tracked, and they could see that the use of drugs and medication went down 
and the, even the, the average lifespan of the residents increased. And the whole medical community, once and for all, was able to prove one of the most crucial issues facing mankind, that puppies are not just for Christmas. Very important answer that we got to that. The, the big conclusion, though, that they did, in all seriousness, the big conclusion that they did draw was that people need a cause beyond themselves. You have to have something beyond yourself. And I think secular people would, would agree in large part, yes, you need to find meaning, otherwise you're nihilistic, destructive. And religious people and spiritual people would agree, yes, you, you need that, otherwise you're depressed and destructive to yourself and to society at large. The difference lies in where does that meaning come from? That's the difference. So we have an area of agreement, but we also have a big difference. Where does meaning come from? Those who are secular would say, well, you have to, because there is no, you've got to remember, you've got to remember there's no higher meta-narrative. You have to generate meaning yourself. You have to find it within yourself. Spiritual people, religious people, followers of Jesus especially, would say, no, no, no. You have to look outside yourself. You have to look at something much bigger, the greatest thing that you could imagine. Now, the idea of insisting that human beings need to suppress their natural intuitions and their natural urge to think about higher meaning and to think about meta-narratives and to think about the future is actually anti-intellectual. It's not a very smart proposition to tell people to do that. It's irrational to tell humans not to contemplate the future. One of the, one of the unique things about the human race is our ability to forecast the future. We do it all the time. You can't turn it off, right? Organizations are always planning. You know, they've got some organizations have very elaborate disaster recovery plans. Emergency services are training and preparing all the time for like different outcomes that could happen. People are putting into their 401ks all the time, planning for the day of future retirement. Hopefully, that's what people are doing at least. The, the, the cur most curious thing to me, actually, the one anomaly in this whole uh, situation that I'm mentioning here is that our, why is it then, if this is the case, why is it then that our weekend plans keep getting messed up by meteorologists? I still can't, it's the one job that you go to school to learn to how to predict the future and you can't do it. And, and when was the last time a meteorologist actually predicted a meteorite? I'm still trying to figure that one out as well. The idea that you're supposed to ignore the future, that you're supposed to turn off your reasoning capacities and ignore th thinking about existential, existential questions is not very, it's, it's not progress towards a better world. In fact, it's actually imposing blind ignorance on people. It's, in, it's encouraging people to be more stupid, in fact. Our, to generate meaning, for us to, to, to look inside and say, I'm gonna create meaning for myself, doesn't work. It's a flawed way of viewing your life and viewing reality because, because of this annoying thing called reality. Reality is really annoying. Reality, if you didn't know this, I'm gonna give you a big insight into life right now. Reality is independent of our interpretations. Reality is different to our ideologies and our imagined ideas and what we would, how we would like things to be. So you can imagine all kind of philosophies and all kind of ideologies and all kind of ideas, and then you face reality, which doesn't change to those ideas. So if you imagine, if you believed that tigers are cuddly and friendly, 
There's only two outcomes. Either you die or you make a hit documentary. Those are the only two outcomes. Reality is, uh, is a situation. I'll say that. Secular ideology that you can generate your own meaning is actually, it violates the psychological understanding that you have to find meaning outside of yourself. Because it actually leaves secular people very vulnerable. Because if your meaning depends on your own, what you're generating, then those things have to go well. So if it's based on your career, you actually, your career has to follow the pathway that you really want it to. If, it's, if, if your meaning is based on your, your political cause, or your political party, or your political ideology going the way you want, well then, if it doesn't go that way, then you're vulnerable to great disappointment and setback. Romance, relationships, family, life, having a certain status or money, all those things, if meaning is self-generated, all those things have to go according to plan in order to actually feel satisfied and feel like you have meaning. If you lose any of those things, have any setbacks, you're, you're very vulnerable, extremely vulnerable. I mean, just ask any guy with a hairline deficiency. <laughs> Talking of myself, I read the instructions wrong and, and put the Rogaine on my face. <laughs> and that happened when I was 10. So it was a big setback, you know. But the thing that got me through it was my faith. You know, I could tell people I'm just trying to be more biblical, and that really helped me. That helped me get through it. But faith, faith, a faith perspective really helps us when you lose, when, when things, when life doesn't turn out the way you hope, when you have setbacks. A faith perspective is more robust and more satisfying than the alternative. Because you know, whatever you lose, God can redeem it. Whatever you self-sacrifice, whatever you give up, whatever doesn't work out, God is preparing a better place for you, a future for you, an outcome for you that you can hope in, that you can trust in. It gives you hope in any dark circumstance. It gives you grace to extend to others when, they're not, when they don't deserve it. That's the power of having faith in the God of the Bible. My point here is to say that secular ideology cannot maintain a satisfactory meaning that can sustain you. It can't do it. And if we want our culture to flourish, here's what we should hope for people. We should hope that they can find the greatest meaning possible, which cannot be self-generated. It can only be discovered in God Almighty. What about the idea of freedom? The idea of freedom, it comes from Christianity. It comes from nowhere else. You cannot find the value of freedom in any other ideology, and no other ideology or worldview can sustain it. Only the Christian virtue and worldview can. Now, there are more explicit verses in the Bible about the issues of freedom, but even the, the, the parable that we read from Jesus, what we see there is we see uh, the devastation of lawlessness in somebody's life. And the whole Bible really paints a big picture for us of the horrors of individual and state-level oppression and crime, and how God wants people to be free of all forms of evil. In fact, it was the wars of the 16th and 17th century where people were just tired. People were tired of, of their lives being controlled and being oppressed by state power. So through the, 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 through the, the 16th and 17th century, people started theorizing about what would an open society, what would a free society look like? How could you actually build one? People started looking at God's word, looking at the Bible, to come up with theories and ideologies. They were, this oppression, this tyranny of government, we've got to get free of it. And they genuinely believe from theological conviction, God wants us to be free of this. So how can we formulate, how can we think up 
a free society. So uh, John Locke, for example, wrote a book, uh, The Two Treatises of, of Government. Uh, that book is really one of the foundational documents for our philosophy of government that we have today. It's still some of the foundational things and, uh, that, that, we, that even we use in political science today. But that, from that book, John Locke was a Christian. He argued successfully and theologically against monarchy. Not a popular thing to do at the time, but he successfully argued against it. And when you take a look at the whole Bible, you get this really strong idea coming through that God doesn't seem to like monarchy that much and actually seems to be more in favor of decentralizing power and diminishing state power. And then so those, those ideas emerged at that period of time. And so then we started to develop freer societies, started playing and experimenting with those ideas. And then it was in the 20th century that those ideas became even more solidified, seeing the, the rise of, of totalitarian governments, seeing the rise of fascism, of communism, and how those ideologies brought about unprecedented suffering and violence that had not been seen before. And even people, all the experiments with socialism, in every case, people realizing this ends up dehumanizing people. And so based on what happened in the 16th and 17th century, then what happened in the 20th century, it solidified the idea in people's minds, the Christian idea of freedom, that God wants people to be free from state tyranny, from state oppression. It's a, it only emerged from Christian contexts. Secular context cannot maintain it, cannot sustain it. And so now we're living in a situation, and actually Ukraine is an amazing example of this. I mean, I wish it wasn't happening to them, but it's, it's amazing to see people who are anti-war, even calling for America to intervene in this, and people who you know, seem to think that freedom is some kind of strange conspiracy theory nowadays or something that shouldn't, we shouldn't care about, are now arguing for the Ukrainians to free themselves. You know, it's, it's the, irony, the, the, the irony of our time is, is amazing to me. But we live in a context where the foundation has changed. So we, we had a, a Christian idea of freedom and we built upon that. Now, We've lost that. We've rejected God. Now we have a secular foundation, but we're trying to keep the Christian ethic of freedom. And I've got to tell you, we cannot keep it with a different foundation. It's impossible. Why was the Christian idea of freedom so important? I mean, it, it, it should be obvious to us. I don't even need to tell us, really, but it should be obvious to us that the more power a state has over you, the more injustice and oppression you will experience. Because we know the more power, the more corruption happens. The more abuse happens. The more power you give, the more power is taken, the more corruption happens, the more people's lives are taken advantage of, the more people are not represented and not helped. Freedom, the Christian idea of freedom, has helped to elevate minorities. It's liberated women. It's protected children. Societies that became free, they reduced poverty. They reduced sickness, they reduce suffering, they empower people to pursue the God-given talents and desires that they have. Now, it's not perfect. We can all agree. It's far from perfect. And we've got a lot more freedoms to realize, right, and to properly apply to all people, right? It's not perfect. We're nowhere close to it. We've got a lot to strive for. But we have to realize that in our context, we have the freest experience that anyone in all of history has ever had. And in our country, we have the greatest symbol of freedom 
that has ever been developed. McDonald's. So anytime you see those golden arches, just remind yourself of the wonderful biblical freedom that God has for us. In all seriousness, though, joking aside, secular ideology rejects God, and therefore it rejects the true understanding of freedom. Because if you're just a random collection of atoms, if you're just the product of indiscriminate forces bringing you together, there is no justification for saying that you should be free. There is no justification for it whatsoever. We have to return to our Christian roots. Instead of getting rid of Christianity, instead of rejecting Jesus and rejecting the Bible, we have to return to it. We have to nurture our Christian roots. What about ideas of human rights and equality? We actually, we see again, we learn again from a study of history, these things have emerged only from Christian contexts. And so we see in the story of the Samaritan here, we see somebody who is using their power to fight for the care for somebody who is culturally different to them, doesn't share the same beliefs and same values as them. But this this, this Samaritan is fighting for this other person, using their power to help them. It's an incredible idea. Now, some people will, interestingly, some people will claim that our system of democratic rule comes from the Greeks. In part, that is correct, in part, but it's wrong. It's wrong for this reason, that in Greek thought, democracy was not based on equality because democracy was for the privileged, the educated, for those in the upper echelon. It wasn't supposed to be distributed to everyone. That would have been a crazy idea to them. So the idea of sharing democratic power amongst all the people only emerges from Christianity. The idea that individuals, regardless of their gender, regardless of their education, regardless of their ethnicity or their ability, that they have equal value, it comes directly and only from the Bible. It comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It is a theological conviction. Science would never arrive at this. Evolution would never arrive at this. It did not come from the Enlightenment. It comes from this verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you believe in equal rights, then you believe in Christianity. If you prize equal rights, you prize the Bible. What about, what about justice? Justice is a Christian idea as well. We're told in Scripture that God is a God of justice. To have a just society, you have to put checks and balances on governing power. There have to be checks and balances. Now, it's certainly true that through the God-given wisdom of the Greeks, democracy emerged. It it came from the Greeks. It doesn't come from the Bible. It came from the God-given wisdom of the Greeks developing democracy. But in our context, something very interesting has happened. It's almost like the best efforts of man, the best wisdom of man has been fused with divine revelation from God, with Christian virtue, with Christian morality, with truth from God. And it's been, so that's the context we live in. We have to realize that. They've been fused together, which is powerful. It's almost like some collaboration between, like, it's like God wanted us to like go and like, you know, build stuff and like make civilization and make culture. And we've come up with some 
decent ideas. And then it's been fused with Christian virtue and Christian ethics. Now, what, Christians, what we have to realize is this, is that God's truth and God's revelation never fails. It always works, every time. But democracies do fail. They are vulnerable. They're imperfect. But what we also realize is they definitely fail and they are definitely corrupt if you take God out of them. That they cannot survive without those Christian ethics and those Christian virtues. That's what we have to realize. We cannot maintain a just system in our culture without its Christian underpinnings. To have those Christian underpinnings, there used to be a shared sense in our culture that human rights were worth fighting for, that equality was worth fighting for. I'm, I'm afraid that we're losing that very rapidly. We don't want equality anymore. We want special treatment now for different people and different groups. We don't, want, we don't actually believe in equality as it's described in the Bible anymore. We're, we're losing that. And we see, again, in the, in the story of the Samaritan, we see somebody who's fighting for somebody, using all of his power to fight for somebody who's culturally different, who doesn't necessarily deserve it, who hasn't earned it. But there's a compassion in that Samaritan's heart to fight for that person. Let me share with you a powerful testimony here. I'm going to read to you. This is a longer testimony. It's going to come up on the screen as well. But this is from a, a historian, Dr. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. Bear with me here. This is, there's a lot to read here, but it's such a powerful testimony. I want to read the whole thing to you. So please bear with me as we get through this. This is going to illustrate what I'm talking about right now. Sarah writes this. She says, I grew up in Australia in a loving secular home and arrived at Sydney University as a critic of religion. I didn't need faith to ground my identity or my values. I knew from the age of eight that I wanted to study history at Cambridge and become a historian. My identity lay in academic achievement, and my secular humanism was based on self-evident truths. As an undergrad, I won the university medal and a Commonwealth scholarship to undertake my PhD in history at King's College, Cambridge. King's is known for its secular ideology, and my perception of Christianity fitted well with the views of my fellow students. Christians were anti-intellectual and self-righteous. After Cambridge, I was elected to a junior research fellowship at Oxford. There, I attended three guest lectures by world-class philosopher and atheist public intellectual, Peter Singer. Singer recognized that philosophy faces a vexing problem in relation to the issue of human worth. The natural world yields no egalitarian picture of human capacities. What about the child whose disabilities or illness compromises her abilities to reason? Yet without reference to some set of capacities as the basis of human worth, the intrinsic value of all human beings becomes an un- grounded assertion, a premise which needs to be agreed upon before any conversation can take place. I remember leaving Singer's lectures with a strange intellectual vertigo. I was committed to believing that universal human value was more than just a well-meaning conceit of liberalism. But I knew from my own research in the history of European empires and their encounters with indigenous cultures that societies have always had different con conceptions of human worth or lack thereof. The premise of human equality is not a self 
self-evident truth. It is profoundly, historically contingent. I began to realize that the implications of my atheism were incompatible with almost every value I held dear. One afternoon, I noticed that my usual desk in the college library was in front of the theology section. With an awkward but humble reluctance, I opened a book of sermons by philosopher and theologian Paul Tillich. As I read, I was struck at how intellectually compelling, complex, and profound the gospel was. I was attracted, but I wasn't convinced. A few months later, near the end of my time at Oxford, I was invited to a dinner for the International Society for the Study of Science and Religion. I sat next to Professor Andrew Briggs, a professor of nanomaterials, who happened to be a Christian. During dinner, Briggs asked me whether I believed in God. I fumbled. Perhaps I was agnostic. He responded, do you really want to sit on the fence forever? That question made me realize that if issues about human value and ethics mattered to me, the response that perhaps there was a God or perhaps there wasn't was unsatisfactory. In the summer of 2008, I began a new job as assistant professor at Florida State University, where I continued my research examining the relationship between the history of science, Christianity, and political thought. With the freedom of being an outsider to American culture, I was able to see an active Christianity in people who lived their lives guided by the gospel, feeding the homeless every week, running community centers, and housing and advocating for migrant farmer laborers. One Sunday, shortly before my 28th birthday, I walked into a church for the first time as someone earnestly seeking God. Before long, I found myself overwhelmed. At last, I was fully known and seen, and I realized unconditionally loved. Perhaps I had a sense of relief from no longer running from God. A friend gave me C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and one night, after a couple of months of attending church, I knelt in my closet in my apartment and asked Jesus to save me and to become the Lord of my life. What a powerful testimony. So we've talked so far about several things. We've talked about meaning, where meaning comes from. We've talked about freedom. We've talked about human rights and equality. Let's talk about morality. Let's talk about morality. We see in this passage here even the, the, the highest moral teaching that you can discover that actually originally comes from the book of Leviticus, but Jesus again repeats it, but the idea of love your neighbor as yourself. No one has been able to improve on this moral teaching. People in our culture don't realize that they actually have a Christian ethic. It's funny to talk to people and who say Christian-sounding things but deny the God of Christianity. So, uh, Theolo uh, sorry, excuse me, historian John Somerville, he actually makes a very interesting claim. He argues very successfully that secular criticisms against Christianity are actually using the standards of Jesus. It's quite ironic. So he does a thought experiment uh, with his students, and he says to them, you know, imagine uh, pre-Christian northern European tribes like the Anglo-Saxons, imagine those that kind of uh, honor and shame culture. And there were Christians at that time trying to reach those Anglo-Saxons. And those Christians had completely different values. They had values of charity and of caring about 
other people's well-being. And then he says, here's a thought experiment. He says, imagine a little old lady, a little old lady at nighttime walking down the road. She's got a big purse with her, and she's got lots of money in her purse. And the question is, why not just knock her over and take the money? And for these shame, these honor and shame-based cultures, the answer for them why they wouldn't do it is because you would be kind of a despicable person for picking on the weak because, and for this foundational reason that you would not be able to respect yourself and you would lose the respect of your tribe. If you say, well, you picked on a weak person, that's it's losing respect. That is a self-regarding virtue. I don't want my reputation to be harmed, therefore I won't do this wrong, immoral thing. But Somerville then says, well, consider another train of thought. Imagine you see that little old lady and you imagine what it would be like to be mugged. The pain and the trauma of her experience, the money that she depends to live on, and that other dependents that she might have, other family members or friends that, that are depending on her wealth as well, what, how it would affect them. Imagine how, how it would affect all those people. And so in that situation, you choose, well, I won't take it because I'm thinking of her and the other people that would affect. This is an other regarding ethic. It's saying I'm completely concerned about the well-being of this other person. And then uh, Dr. Uh, Somerville has indicated over the years that when he does this thought experiment with his students as he's lecturing, the vast majority of his students will say that they have, they have the second ethic, the other regarding ethic. And then he shows them very convincingly from history, that's a Christian ethic. It comes from scripture, comes from the Bible. Christianity changed those honor-based cultures that valued pride instead of humility. They valued dominance instead of service. They valued power rather than peace. They valued glory rather than modesty. They valued loyalty to your own tribe rather than equal respect for all people. Christianity transformed those cultures. And so today, people don't understand. They're nested in a history and in a context that is completely infused with Christian ethics and Christian values. And they say very Christian things with no idea that they're speaking the words of Jesus. They're acting in a Christian way. If you value these things and you live these things out, you like justice, then you like Jesus. You like the Bible. It's, a, it's an incredible thing to consider. If we want to nurture these values, if we don't want to lose these values, we have to take the claims of the Christian faith seriously. We have to nurture it in our own hearts. It's dependent upon each one of us, also beyond ourselves to share it with others. What about the emergence of hospitals? You understand your history, right? That hospitals emerged from Christian compassion and from nowhere else, no other context, no other culture has developed a healthcare system, a system of hospitals and nurses and doctors, all these things that we have, they come only from Christian heritage. We read, it, we read it here in this parable. This Samaritan is binding up wounds, pouring oil and wine on to help the healing happen. This is a Christian virtue of compassion that's being extended here. It seems that even the gold frankincense and myrrh that was given at Jesus' birth would not be enough to afford the hospital bills if he was born today because it seems that our ethic of compassion for healthcare has now been replaced with a business ethic of healthcare. And so healthcare now today needs more Jesus 
It needs a little more Jesus in it. We've got to get back to our Christian roots because we've lost the compassion element of it. What about charities? Charities are a Christian idea. They emerged exclusively in Christian context. They come from no other worldview, and secular ideology cannot maintain them, cannot sustain them. In fact, many charities today have lost their Christian heritage, sadly. They've been hollowed out. They maybe They're doing good works, and we should celebrate that, but not the good message. They're not sharing the good message anymore. That's why the, the church exists still, to share the good message and to do the good works of Jesus. We've got to get back to our Christian roots, charities need, in fact, it's a strange thing to say, but charities need more Jesus. In fact, today, a lot of charities are political in nature. They're not social in nature. They're now political in nature. That's because we're losing our Christian roots. What about higher education? All the universities that we know, they were started by Christians for Christian reasons. All the big ones, Princeton, Yale, Oxford, Harvard, they were started as Bible-believing institutions. They were started on the premise that God had created a world that you could go and explore and discover and have open and honest curiosity. And yet you see it modeled by Jesus and the lawyer here. They're having a reasoned discussion, a reasoned debate. They're dialoguing back and forth, a question, a response, a question, a response. And we see emerging from Christianity, the establishment of these institutions to educate people, to train people, to discover creation, to, to make breakthroughs in, in incredible ways, to really to, to, to actually undo the evil in our world. But since we've lost our Christian roots, since we're losing our Christian ethics, a lot of our, these, ed, these institutions of higher education now, they're not about education, now they seem to be about indoctrination. They've lost their way in many regards. They need more Jesus. And I think all students all in all places would agree, if more Jesus means less homework, then give me, give me the Jesus. Let me end with this, the final most important ethic that we get from the Christian faith that has infused our culture, that our culture is in danger of losing and is losing rapidly, is the virtue of ethic, the, the, the ethic of uh, mercy, excuse me, the ethic of mercy. Verses 20, uh, 36 through 37, at the end of this parable, it says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go, and do likewise. Everybody needs mercy. To have a healthy, to have healthy relationships, to have a healthy family, to have a healthy society. We all need kindness. We all need forgiveness. We all need mercy. A secular mindset has no justification for showing forgiveness to people. You, there's no reason. What is the reason to forgive? In fact, the ideologies of our times are so toxic, so destructive, so divisive. There's no redemption in the destructive ideologies of our times. We know this, right? There's no redemption. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness. There's only division, accusation. We need less Twitter, and we need more Jesus. We've got to get back to our Christian roots. Not only is the Christian virtue of, of mercy so important, but Jesus, he takes it to a whole new level. Mercy is described this way, that mercy is not being treated how you deserve to be treated. That's mercy, right? Not getting the consequence of what you should have. You've done something wrong, you've acted out, you, and not getting the punishment. That's mercy. Someone going light on you, letting, letting you off the hook, that's showing mercy. Jesus takes it a step farther. This is the powerful central message of the Bible. Jesus takes it a step farther. 
Jesus takes it all the way to grace. Mercy grows. Beyond mercy, what is there? There's grace. Grace is then not only not treating people how they are deserved to be treated. Grace is going a step farther and saying, I am going to bless you. I am going to be willing to forgive my worst enemy and actually seek the blessing and the provision and the help of even my worst enemy. It's the only ideology that can stop the offenses of history. Because what's history? History is a big story of cycles of offense and retaliation, isn't it? This individual hurts this individual. This people group hurts this people group. Well, then this individual and this people group retaliate. And there's a retaliation. And then there's, and people forget, like, why are we fighting again? Well, it's, oh, something in history happened where we, so we have to all hate each other now because something happened a while ago that some people, that some of us are related to, did some bad things at different times. And now we will hate each other. The only thing that can stop it is an attitude of grace. It's the more mature mindset. It comes from the wisdom of God. It's the self-sacrificing virtue of Jesus, that Jesus on the cross was willing to say, I'll take their punishment, I'll take their crime, I'll take their sin, I'll take their shame, I'll take it all on myself, take that whole burden on myself, I'll bear their punishment in my body on the cross once and for all, that they might be free forever. That is the power that can change the world. And if you take on the narrative of Jesus rather than the toxic, destructive narrative and ideology and identity of the world, if you take on the story of Jesus, if you live out the personhood of Jesus, you will change the world. Because that level of grace, that level of self-sacrifice is the only thing that will sustain our culture and can sustain any culture. We need our Christian roots. Not so that we can have the society that we want, but so people can know Jesus, so people can go to heaven, so people can have eternal security, so people can be forgiven of their sins so that they can forgive others for the sins committed against them. We need to worship Jesus. Let's respond. Consider how do you need to respond? Perhaps you need to take a step closer to Jesus. Maybe you're ready to come all the way in. If you're ready, the way you do it is you repent. It's not that hard. You just say, God, I've done a bunch of really stupid, really awful, really bad things. Forgive me. That's repentance. And that means turning away from it, saying, I'm going to be done with it. I'm going to follow you from now on. Tell us. If that's you, tell us today. If you want to get more involved at Trinity, you want to join a group, you want to serve, you want to give today, you want to get involved somehow, reach out to us. Get connected. Hang out. Eat some. Maybe your next step today is to eat some cake. Maybe it's that simple. I'll, just, I'll have a slice of cake, a baby step, and then I'll consider if I'll do anything else. But the, the big thing to remember is what Natalie talked about in announcements is our Connect card, our digital Connect card. That's one really valuable way that you can reach out and take a next step. So go ahead, make sure you, in, you text the word ENJOY to 94000 and take that step today.